if, if I had to reduce ground contact time as I accelerate, moving into an elastic resistance is probably a, an ineffective strategy. Good morning, happy Monday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, Monday, looking forward to a great week. Gotta start off with a couple of housekeeping things. If you're on IFAST University, we have an IFAST University Q&A call at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Um, so be ready for that. If you're not on IFAST University, um, please go to ifastuniversity.com and get yourself signed up so you can participate in, in those calls and in the, uh, the private discussion group as well. Um, the intensive applications are closed, obviously, if you're, if you're paying any attention to, to that. Um, quick story. Went to dinner with uh, Mom Hartman over the weekend. Came back and had more applications um, in the in the email box than it usually takes about a day or two to accumulate. And we did it in about three hours, so I had to I had to close that very very quickly. So I apologize for those of you that did not get a chance to apply. Um, but we got like I said, we got way more than than we normally do. So I got a little bit of work to do on that. We're gonna to try to get through those as quickly as possible um, so I can notify the, the, the people that do get to attend. Keep in mind that there's only eight people that get to come. Um, it, it's important that we keep it very, very small, thus the intensive. Um, so again, appreciate you all there. Um, today's Q&A is with Greg. Speaking of the intensive, Greg was an intensive attendee and, and a, participant, uh, a participant. Um, in the current uh, um, group with the intensive folks that is ongoing. So I know Greg a little bit, and we got a chance to talk over the weekend about some elastic resistance um, issues, about how I, I would typically use it, why I think there might be some negative secondary consequences associated with using band resistance. We have to be judicious in our approach when we're using elastic resistance because of the increasing force as you um, obviously elongate that. So, so Greg and I got into that a little bit. So this is going to be interesting for those of you that, that do like to use elastic resistance because there may be some things that you're doing that are actually creating some interference. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so we don't delete it, and we will organize that and arrange it at our earliest mutual convenience. Have an outstanding Monday. Enjoy the call, and I will see you guys tomorrow. All right, Greg, we are rolling. Clock has started. Let's talk. What's going on? Yeah, so uh, I mean, I sent an email asking about the uh, bands. Essentially, how can bands be utilized to uh, create specific adaptations, right? So, uh, right. in various ways. So, I'm, I'm thinking if we can go horizontal, vertical, yeah, just on the muscle itself, if you will, like yeah. uh, so you're curling it, um, or anything along those lines. Like, how how does them how can you utilize them to manipulate what you're, what you're trying to get? So, so a couple of things that we probably want to understand about the elastic resistance is, is the fact that, that to, to deform the elastic element more requires a, a higher force production. And so there are certain circumstances where, where that's really, really helpful. And then there's certain elements, certain times where that's going to be interference. So for instance, um, if I was trying to teach someone to accelerate and I, and I have them accelerating into an elastic resistance. So, so if, if I had to reduce ground contact time as I accelerate, moving into an elastic resistance is probably 
an ineffective strategy because what it's going to do is, is as I push into it, the force goes up and I get pushed into the ground harder and longer. Mm-hmm. So that kind of defeats the purpose. So under those circumstances, I'm not a big fan. So I don't, I don't create a lot of accelerative activities into elastic resistance under those so what, circumstances. Go ahead. What would, what would that do? So like if I'm pushing into the band, so like what would that Okay. So if, let's, let's look at like the first 10 in a, in a sprint. Mm-hmm. So you're accelerating. Your ground contact time is longer compared to, to, to top speed element. But if I'm moving into a greater resistance, I'm getting pushed into the ground longer when, when I actually want my ground contact time to get shorter. Okay. So I'm actually training myself to produce a, a, a longer duration of force when I need to teach them to produce a shorter duration of force. Right. And so, again, I'm just not I'm just not a big fan. Um, like I said, like a first step, maybe not too bad. The, the, the more you get into it again, where, where you saw, see the decreasing ground contact time, not a big fan. Um, when you think about um, certain activities uh, uh, where like the highest force production, <clears throat> the highest force production in, in let's just say like a, a loaded squat of some sort is through that that middle range plus or minus the sticking point that's where you would produce the highest amount of force if you're only using elastic resistance then the highest resistance is at the top when i'm standing up so again it's like it's like is it useless no is it best no, right? There's some resistance there, but it's, but it's not where you would want, want them to, to be. So if, if I'm trying to enhance their ability to produce force at that end range, then by all means, we're okay because we've got an increasing um, requirement of force production to deform the, the elastic element, right? So again, it's right. like, where are you applying this? Now, how can we use this to our advantage? Okay, so if we're talking about, and, and you know, I like to talk about box squats and the banded squats and things like that, if the highest force production is at the top of the squat, I can take advantage of that because if, if I um, lower myself onto a box very quickly from a, from a position where the force is actually higher at, at that, that initial position, I can accelerate myself towards, towards the box, which provides me any number of advantages. So I can get the, I can get the, the, the body to descend faster than the internal forces that would be applied by like just my internal organs. So they actually float. So if I can go faster than, than the guts fall, I get my body down onto the box, I create the yielding action there, and then the guts follow down, and now I get this like trampolining kind of effect. So I'm mm-hmm. actually creating something that's very, very similar to the, to the yield and overcome action of, of, of what people would classify as plyometrics. So under those circumstances, I'm, I'm actually going to enhance my ability to spring back off the box because if, if, you, if you can picture the pelvic outlet like a trampoline, right? So I come down, I set the trampoline down on the box, the guts come down right after the body does, I get this nice little recoil and it throws me back up off the box. So under those circumstances, we've got something very, very useful. If I flip-flop that, Okay. I have somebody that's kind of, you know, those people that, are, that look like they're stuck to the ground. They got the two inch yes. vertical jumps, right? Or they, or they have trouble managing <clears throat> gravity, right? They, they just can't overcome. 
Now I've reversed the elasticity so the force is greatest at the, at the level of the box. Now I enhance their ability to accelerate off the box and I teach them to, to throw their internal organs up in the air, right? So there's a little bit of a delay. So as they get up off the box, now the gut's pushed down. So I'm still using the trampoline concept. The bands are helping me get the body ahead of the, of, of the guts. The guts get thrown up in the air. The longer I can keep my, my guts in the air, the longer I can get off the ground or the mm -hmm. faster I can, I can cycle my leg. I, I have more time to cycle my feet for, for quickness purposes. So, so again, I can take advantage of these points where the force is the highest because it's going to provide me an advantage as to what's moving at what rate. Right. So we okay, are. Yeah. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. So like the, the last, <clears throat> I kind of, the one thing I got confused with, with the, uh -huh. you're saying it was when the force is highest at the, at the lowest point. So on the box squad, the lowest point yes, of the box squad. So you have that. Yes, sir. How can you have that with the bands? Unless you're like getting assistance with your hands. Does that make sense? Cause like, if I have a bar on my shoulders, it's connected mm -hmm. to me. I'm holding it on to myself, right? Okay. So you are using your hands. I mean, you're, yep. and, and we'll have situations where we'll just, we'll just strap people to the bands right. under their arms. And right. like but when you drop down at that point, the band's at tension, right? So you, get you get unloaded. Technically, that is true. That is true. You're no, you're absolutely right. But understand what my intention is. So, so my intention is not. I'm not working on that that descension element per se. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to emphasize one element of this whole thing. So, if I, again, I've, I I do have people because of their physical structure. So, if I'm talking about some of those people we talk about with a pylon structure, or I have I have someone with that descended diaphragm that I'm trying to teach them to ascend mm. it, um, going from eccentric to concentric, right? Or accelerating off the box. The, 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 because the force is the highest with the band tension going upward, the force is the highest at the bottom. That gets everything moving faster because what they can't do, what they have trouble with is that the guts are creating this downforce internally. But the rubber band, so just like a slingshot, if I pull the slingshot back and I let it go, whatever I had in the slingshot is going to go forward faster. Okay, so the guts are essentially sitting in this slingshot, which is the, the pelvic outlet and the rubber band. Gotcha. Okay. okay. So I slingshot that stuff up in the air. So what that teaches them is how to accelerate their body and then to unweight themselves internally. So, so the guts will follow. There's a slight delay, right? That creates my little yield and it throws them up. And again, it just teaches them how to, how to, how to get their guts off of that, that pelvic outlet. And that's what's going to improve their ability to reposition their feet more quickly, right? It potentially, it increases their ability to jump higher, Okay, but again, because of their physical structure, they're always going to have some sort of limitation in that regard. What we're trying to do is just give them a, a little bit more of a, of a mechanical advantage under those circumstances. And then there's ways to, that, that we, can, we can progress this. Like you start with a really thick band, you go to a medium band, you go to a thin band, and that's just the reverse engineering of, of progressive resistance. So instead of putting more weight on the bar, we're just reducing the amount of assistance. And so this is how they're going to get carryover to when they're just trying to manage their own body weight, right? And again, under these circumstances, if you have somebody that's relying on that strategy, if we have to go to that strategy 
chances are their their genetic potential for for you know like vertical jumping and and high speed activities is probably not in their future but what we can do is teach them how to position themselves more effectively so you know, if you got a guy that has like a, you know, an eight inch vertical jump, but if he can reposition his feet faster, now he's going to be in a greater position to, to, to be a, a position player on a basketball court, or he's going to know how to get himself in position for a rebound more effectively. Right. You see, you see where I'm getting? With yes, 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 yes. It's like, yep, it's, yep. What we're trying to do is we're trying to take, okay, here's what, here's what your potential represents. Here's how I can manipulate this to the best degree possible. It would be very rare that you could take somebody that that has a physical structure that only allows a couple inches of vertical jump and turn them into a 30-inch vertical jumper, right? It just doesn't happen. The physical structure is not there. But we can take what they have. We can enhance the elements that we can. And this is where the elastic resistance really – like for me, I like to play on this vertical element a whole lot more than I do on the horizontal because moving into that elastic resistance – Okay, does not enhance your ability to, to accelerate. What we can also do, though, on the horizontal is pull people more aggressively into a mm-hmm. cut. I really like that um, for the people that, that have a lot of trouble, um, you know, uh, dampening those forces. So, mm-hmm. so we'll do that quite a bit. Um, in regards to to like a preload for somebody that is um, um, coming out of a cut. So we'll load them a little bit more aggressively into the cut and then take the resistance away as they move out of the cut, right? And so, so again, it teaches them how to, how to hold position, how to um, decelerate those, those forces into the cut. So we can teach them the dampen or we can teach them the return. Um, so under those circumstances, I really like the elastic resistance there. That makes sense. Yeah, so I've, I've, been, I've been messing around a little bit with the uh, <clears throat> that increase the speed of gravity, like I said, and pull, getting pulled into something and then yeah. and stop. Yeah. I've been using a lot, a lot of that with the basketball guys from a jumping standpoint. Yes. For that transition, that vertical to horizontal movement. So I'll pull yeah. them into it Perfect. to the point of Perfect. no stretch on the band. Yes. And then, and so they can come out. Because you had mentioned to me, like, like you said, if you have stretch on the band, when you're trying to put your foot into the ground and trying to jump, you're defeating the purpose because you're increasing the time now. But you can get right. that. The, the speed of increase, yeah, and then take the resistance away to get that transition. Yes. And that's where it's at. And I mean, we, we, and that's that's actually worked gangbusters for us. Like it's been insane. Like, we got like eighth graders dunking basketballs now. It's like it's, it's nuts. <laughs> like, it's been really cool. That's awesome. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, but it's so, like, so, what about like you know people do a lot of times? I'll see like, hey, we'll do a front like a zercher squat or something, front foot elevated uh, or heel elevated, <clears throat> utilizing that band. Uh, as resistance and a lot of times that's just because of the strengths like they don't have a cable they don't have anything like that yeah is that is yeah. that still like is there would it be so like say they're getting pulled into it versus like say maybe being it behind and you dropping down as an assistance like forward motion thing would that be any difference like how would that make a difference does that make sense i have a hard time visualizing that um i i so whenever we use the, the elastic resistance under those circumstances, I tend to make it more of a rate-related um, intention. Okay. So if, so if I was going to do like a – so if you had a front foot on a ramp, is that what you're talking about? Like for a split squat? Like a zero Yes. Jump? Okay. Yep. So under those circumstances, what I would, what I would prefer um, it, from a utilization standpoint is take advantage of the high resistance at the top – 
but except like 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 try to get down into the split squat very very quickly because again what i don't want to do is is slow slow this down per se what i want to teach them to do is to dampen that force so if i was going to use on any resistance that would be elastic again i want the differential of rate it's not about the resistance in and of itself because all i got to do is put a bar in in your the the crook of your elbows and i've got resistance what i want is the the reasoning behind it is the differential there's more force at the top than there is at the bottom if i if i do it very very slowly under some circumstances maybe maybe that's that's useful you got somebody that, that can't hold the 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 lowered position like towards that ir they don't produce a lot of force but but they do at the top i suppose it, it's it's useful but again i tend to use it more for a rate dependent um, okay. versus just pure resistance a, a rubber band is not a substitution for a cable because they, okay. they behave differently. Okay. They behave differently because right. the minute, because again, it, because of the elastic, because of the elastic uh, uh, resistance, the force at the bottom is so much higher. It doesn't mean that I can't use it to my to my advantage. So, um, you know how I like to use the staggered stance chops to create the the D load. So at yes. the very bottom, at the very bottom of a of an elastically resisted chop, I am the lightest that I will be under those circumstances. So under in that situation, I do like to use the resistance because it does unweight me to a significant degree, and it will allow me to capture a position. Because if I reduce the influence of gravity, I am less likely to to superimpose a superficial strategy that will limit the relative motions that are available to me in the axial skeleton. So let's, yeah, so let's say we use that example because uh -huh. like because a lot of these bands like you can use so we say we you know, get a really skinny one always a really thick one right yeah like there can be drastic changes and okay. like okay. you know between even a little small one the big one uh, in the individual so like say you're trying to do that chop like and you have like for us it's yellow is a really skinny one we have a yellow and it's like i don't feel anything per se like now i get you're not necessarily what you're trying to get is one thing but it's okay. like it's just they can kind of get it Yep. But let's say you add that you go up one side and then they go to do the chop and it's, you know, we can't, right. you know, your arms are strong enough now. And so it's like right. a huge shoulder shrug. Yep. Like, so the, and, and that's where it's like, it, it matters in regards to, a lot. uh, yeah. And okay. Cause I, I know how do you, at that point it's just like, oh, you just have to do like a, do something else, less of a chop essentially. Well, so it, 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 it's going to come down to the resistance. So, so, so again, so usually what I'm talking about here is an intention to capture a position. It's not about like how much resistance that they feel. Um, this is not, we're not worried about force production per se. We're worried, we're worried about reducing the influence of the, of the downward force that there is their body weight aka gravity right so if i'm if i'm pulling a band downwards the farther i can push that band down the more i'm unweighted but if i can't push it down okay then i'm not i'm definitely not going to capture the position that i would want if relative motion is the case now if i'm trying to to um create a situation where the axial skeleton has reduced motion and i want to influence the relationship between an extremity and the axial skeleton so the true hip joint if I'm trying to create motion at just the true hip joint, I can increase the resistance. So now we do have a lot more tension through the axial skeleton. And if mm -hmm. I can't create the turn at the true hip joint, now I'm influencing that position where I'm capturing relative motion there versus the distributed relative motion that I talk about in the axial skeleton. So we just have to decide what our intention is. And then that's going to determine what the strategy and the resistance is going to be. 
hundred percent makes sense. And I and I say that and in certain like you say certain circumstances, that's very useful. And I'm not being like in athletics that, that plays a little bit more of a role in regards to yeah. stability and things like that and like right. what you need to do to comedy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You have push against you and things like yep. Yeah, I think that I think that that, that where a lot of the confusion lies is is what the intention really is because because most people think that if I'm applying resistance to something then then force production is my goal when that's not really the case what we're doing is we're manipulating forces to allow us to accomplish a specific outcome. And, and so again, if I'm trying to capture motion, I can definitely use the elastic resistance to my advantage. But what are the secondary, we always have to consider secondary consequences, right? Is there something that, am I creating interference for something? So again, high resistance, a high resistance band chop creates interference for relative motion in the axial skeleton, but it also may buy me the extremity position that I wanted in the first place. Now, right. now I'm fulfilling my goal. It's like, so we have to define we have to be better at defining what our intention is. And now we just follow the principle. So, so again, elastic resistance follows a very specific principle. The greater the, greater the, the elongation or compression of, of an elastic element, the more force is going to be applied. That's the rule. That's is it Hooke's law, right? It's Hooke's yep. law. So as long as we understand how to apply Hooke's law and then how, do, how does our system behave under those circumstances, now we can make better choices. Nice. And I just want to verify that you just said that the greater the stretch on the elastic elements equals greater compression on the elastic elements. Higher right? force. It's higher force. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. But okay. yeah. Yeah, I like how you, yeah, okay. Yeah. Nice. And so, nice. so for us as humans, the higher the force production that we have to produce, the greater the compressive strategy that we're going to use and the reduction in, in relative motions, motions, okay, is going to be observed. Right. So that's why we got to play with these resistances a little bit. It's like, you know, some people come in and they go, it just feels like I'm going through the motions. And I go, good, because that's what I want. <laughs> right? Everybody thinks that everything has to be more force, more force, more force. When the reality is, it's like, what are we trying to accomplish? If I need movement, I don't want maximal compressor strategy. Right. Mm -hmm. I, need, I need to optimize it based on the outcome that I'm intending. Right. And you have the bands essentially to unweight that situation I, a lot of I times. Use, I use that a, I use that a fair amount because it's one it's really really easy and it and it's something that I can give somebody to take home like like in my yep. situation where I'm working in the purple room it's like I can give somebody elastic resistance and I can say here's what I want you to do here's why I want you to do it and, and then they can capture their positions that, nice. that I'm looking for because typically typically um, a, a lot of the folks that come to see me need more relative motion what makes sense yeah yeah, yeah. awesome how'd we do Good, good. Appreciate that. All right, brother. I got to run. Good to see All you right. as always. I will see yes. you. Uh, I obviously, well, I'll see you on uh, the, the intensive group. Okay. Yes, sir. All, All right. right. Okay. Later. Hey, you know, this rule doesn't seem to be, you know, effective across the board. It's like that's why we're looking for principle based approaches, that's why we're looking for critical thinking. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. I'm already having a great Tuesday. Had a great mentorship call a little bit ago. So I'm still pretty fired up about that. Last night started going through the uh, applications of the intensive. Um, it's always it's my least favorite part of this whole thing is is the selection process because everybody's trying so hard um, to get in, which I truly truly appreciate. I wish everybody could come, but 
we got to keep it small we got to keep it focused and intensive thus the name um, so again I appreciate everybody that has applied I'm going to try to let everybody know probably within the next couple three days um, so we can get rolling on the preparatory work so be looking out for that um, today's Q&A is with Andrew and so Andrew's a regular on the uh, coffee and coaches conference calls and he's also a member of IFS University so I know Andrew a little bit and um, we actually get into a discussion about about complexity um, via use of lower body training and some overhead stuff but but really what we were talking about is how we manage um, the these processes and, and what are the rules and so when we're dealing with complexity situations there are too many unknowns for us to actually know exactly what's going on so this is why I talk about a representative model being so important uh, but we also rely on heuristics we also rely on rules of thumb in the, which which Andrew brings up um, in, in, a, in a great series of questions and so I think this discussion is going to be useful for a lot of people, especially for younger coaches that think that there are these established rules in the industry, and you'll kind of see how how it's it's much more gray than that, and we have to get down to these these basic principles, um, and then it, it, that will flesh out how we proceed with our interventions. So again, I think you'll find it all uh, very very useful. Have an outstanding Tuesday. If you would like to uh, participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and then I will see you guys tomorrow. We are rolling, and the clock has started. Andrew, what is your question? So uh, in my eyes, the strength of your model lies in the coherence aspect and in the fact that we can apply it to pretty much any situation when it comes to movement. Yes, sir. And, as, and as a result, it's really useful for fitness professionals like you and me and everyone at IFAST to be able to use it and to get into the technicalities of it. I am mm -hmm. also aware that because there's such a strong element of truth to the way that you're looking at things, that it will become more and more disseminated um, in, you know, good and bad ways, I'm sure, um, as time goes on. And I think to myself, there are a lot of people out there who are just trying to work on general fitness and trying to work on understanding what to do in the gym, you know, rather than trying to set inhumane goals in the, on the field or in the gym. And for people like that, oftentimes rules of thumb are much more useful than like, well, what's going on at the base of the sacrum or <laughs> which, which turn is my body stuck in right now. And so I've been thinking a lot about kind of rules of thumb that aren't true, but they're useful. <laughs> um, and they need to be qualified in a, in a real and precise way. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, would it be a useful rule of thumb that a program that is based in trying to restore general movement capabilities and in trying to maintain or promote health should include lower body exercises and some element of either recapture, recapturing or strengthening overhead motion? And the, the reason I ask that is because it seems that lower body exercises and overhead exercises are 
the most direct classes of exercises where you're going against gravity. You're literally just going upwards. And it might be up and back. It might be up and forwards. But so many people, so many people don't include either type of exercise in their training program. And to me, it it may underlie why a lot of people end up with just poor degree of success, like among many other factors. So the question is, is that a good rule of thumb or is it not even nuanced enough? I just want to hear from you because you know much more than I do. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know about that. Um, let, let, me, let me clarify something first and then we'll, we'll, we'll go after your, your actual question, okay? So, so we're dealing with a very, very complex situation when we're dealing with, with humans. So, so we, we, humans are a complex adaptive system. And so <clears throat> what that means is we don't understand it, okay? Um, and so um, that's why we use a model. So a model is a representation that allows us to make decisions and to intervene effectively with a system that we do not understand. Okay, so I know, don't tell anybody this, I know the model is wrong. I don't know how wrong yet, I don't know. I know that, that, the, way that the way that it is, has evolved is it becomes very useful. But we always use rules of thumb and heuristics and modeling to help us make decisions because we don't know. We just don't know, okay? So there's nothing wrong with establishing a rule of thumb that is useful and effective. I have no issues with that whatsoever. So let's make sure that we understand that. Now, going to your question, um, it, 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 it's kind of vague in your representation that you say, oh, I need to include lower body. Okay, so when are you not including lower body? Sure. You, so, so we need a qualifier in, in that regard so we, can, so we can understand each other. So when you say including lower body, what do you mean by that? Because, for instance, you, you mentioned an overhead press or something like that. It's like if I'm standing up, the force that I'm applying upward into whatever resistance that I'm pushing upward starts from the ground and, and I push up. You see what I'm getting at? It's like, right, it's like right. so we, have to, we have to be very clear as to what you're referring to when you're talking about including a lower body activity. So, so it's lower body under what circumstance? So if I'm doing a suitcase carry, right. for instance, am I not involving my lower body? Yes, you are. Am I not, am, am I not including internal pressure management? I am. Right. So we, we want to look at this thing from the perspective of how the entire system is interacting. So do me a small favor here and clarify exactly what you have in your head when you say including lower body so we can so we can have a reasonably intelligent because I can't promise anything for myself, a reasonably intelligent conversation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess I would qualify that by saying instead of just lower body exercise, dynamic dynamic just lower pick an, body pick an activity. Don't, don't be vague and, and generalize. Okay. Just like pick, pick a specific activity that you have in mind when you're saying this, and then we can go from there. So now we have a point of reference that we can discuss. Uh, let's say a split squat. Okay, awesome. 
Gotcha. Just general class. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. So now, so now we have a point of reference. And so, so it can, is it safe for me to assume that, that, that it is your perspective that that type of an activity needs to be included in a program? Is that what you're saying? It's a useful rule of thumb because, you know, for somebody who, for somebody who already has the movement capabilities and already has the strength, they might be able to just go in and deadlift and yep. that's enough because they're already uh, yep. demonstrating so much of that already. Yes. Um, I think I'm with you. So, I'm with you now. So can I jump in for a sec? Of course. Okay. So if we're talking about someone that we're trying to restore, <clears throat> as I would discuss, relative motion. So relative motion within the axial skeleton and within the relationships between the extremities and the axial skeleton. Is that what we're talking about? We're trying to get somebody that, that and a, from a general statement standpoint, we want them to move more effectively. Yes. And there's so many people like that. Yeah. Okay. So that's the principle that we want to talk about then. And so what we would say is, is what activities now support that intention? If we're talking about anything in a split stance orientation, that orientation is specifically designed to create relative motions within the exoskeleton at some points in time and within the relationship between the extremity and the, the axial skeleton. So let me clarify. <clears throat> when we're in the top position, leg split, for, split front to back, I have two points of contact on the floor, which I need to create relative motions within the axial skeleton. So for me to get the, the interaction between the bones, let me grab my, <clears throat> let me grab my pelvis for a second. So if we're talking about getting relative motion within the axial skeleton itself. So I'm using the sacrum relative to the, to the ilia here, okay, as my representation. To create that type of a turn, I need two points of contact on the ground. Because the minute I pick up one foot, the pelvis tends to sort of solidify into a single segment. There's, there's a limited amount of relative motion there. Right, and that's just that's just a normal behavior of how I would distribute force and try to hold my position. So if I pick up my foot and I don't want to collapse into the ground, I have to compress things into a single segment. Now I have relative motion between the the femur and the pelvis as a unit. So that's the distinguishing characteristic between two points of contact and one point of contact on the floor. So when people classify a split stance activity as a single leg exercise, that is absolutely wrong. In, in every way, okay? We can bias back and forth between one leg and the other, right? Which will change elements of how much relative motion we have available to us. But the reality is if I get that two points of contact, um, it's totally different than being in a single leg stance, okay? All right. right. So <clears throat> as I'm moving through space in that split stance orientation, at the top of, of, the, of the, the exercise where, I, where I'm at, at my highest level of elevation, right? Under those circumstances, that's where I'm establishing um, a position of relative motion in, in what would be external rotation representations, right? That establishes the, the field within which I can move. So the space within, I, within which I can move, I now have relative motions available to me within, within, the axial skeleton itself. So the sacrum can turn, the spine can move, the ribs move, etc. Okay. As I descend, 
into the split squat and I start to approach a position where I'm superimposing more and more internal rotation, more and more force into the ground, I actually have to reduce the amount of relative motion available because the higher the force output, the less relative motion I can demonstrate. Because what would happen is if I try to produce force where I have lots of relative motion available to me, I dissipate the force. <clears throat> so I don't really produce a high level force. It gets so distributed that there's no, there's no increase in, in the force output. And this can be risky because if I accidentally load a structure that is trying to distribute force, I may take it to its end constraint. And now I have a situation on my hands that I don't want to have. Because if I can't control it, <clears throat> and we've been going back and forth on email that a lot of people don't know. It's like, you asked me about injury potential. There you go. That's a situation that we really don't want to have, right? I don't want a massive amount of relative motion when the force output is very, very high unless I have the capacity to distribute that safely and effectively. And that goes, that's, that's a byproduct of, of exposures, experience, and training. Okay. So yep. do I want a situation? Do I want a situation for somebody that I'm trying to, to um, improve their capabilities of relative motions and then, and then some measure of, of force production so they can remain effective in whatever activity that they want? Absolutely. But the rule is not you have to do split squats or you yes. have to do split stands. The rule is, is I need to create the environment that allows relative motion under certain circumstances and I need to, to produce force under certain circumstances. The great thing about the split squat is that it gives me an element of, of both under certain circumstances. And I can tweak that split squat in any number of ways, asymmetrical loads, uh, right, we, we talk about offset loading on contralateral, ipsilateral sides. We talk about bilateral symmetrical loading. I can put a bar on your back. There's any number of ways that I can tweak this thing to bias me more towards force production or bias me more towards relative motions. So, so your rule of thumb is not, I need to do split squats. Your rule of thumb is I need to select exercises that, that fulfill my intent of, am I restoring relative motion or am I producing force. Do you, do you see it? Yes. So, so now it's just a matter of understanding. It's like which exercises fulfill that need. Now, so let me give you another scenario since we're talking about lower body. What if I got somebody that has, they come in with a constraint that limits my exercise selection. So somebody comes in and they say, Andrew, my left knee has been a problem for the last 15 years. I don't want you to aggravate that, but I'm trusting you with my health. And you go, oh, can you do a split squat? And they go, I don't know. It kind of hurts when I go up the stairs. Now, going up the stairs is not a split squat because it's not always double foot contact. So now you're thinking it's like, okay, the single leg thing might be a question mark. We'll see. Okay. Let's see what happens when you do two, two feet on the ground. And you test them and you say, oh, that's either a good thing or it's either a bad thing. Okay. And then you might need... What you might find is a bilateral symmetrical activity is not painful. A split stance activity is painful. And so what that might mean is if I reduce the amount of rotation, that's what happens when I make my stance symmetrical, I'm reducing the amount of rotation available. Okay, I can, I can fulfill my desire of creating some measure of relative motions. 
Okay, I can also induce from the top down some other way to create a turn. So I don't have to offset my feet like I would in a split squat. I can keep it bilateral and symmetrical, but I can do some turning in, in some other way, shape or form. You understand? It's like, like cable activities, chopping, lifting, presses, turns, et cetera, et cetera. So I might be able to create my relative motion in that respect. And now I am protecting that person from the activities that were offending um, for, their, for their constraint when they came in the door. So far, so good? Right. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Now, let's talk about this overhead thing. Not everybody has the capacity to reach overhead. So, Do I know it? Yeah. So chasing that might be a bad idea. Okay? Right. It doesn't mean that, they, that we can't, can't perform activities where the, where the arm is elevated, it just means that we're we are going to have to respect what their capabilities are. And now we're getting into, okay, what kind of a compressive strategy becomes a limiting factor under those circumstances, right? Right, right. Go ahead. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna clarify that I would never tell someone to do X overhead exercise without qualifying that. Um, and without qualifying that, part of the goal needs to be to figure out what what is the capacity what is your capacity to reach like where is it 90 110 wherever it is and then how can you work to restore that perhaps over time i think that that's a central element to it because otherwise compensatory right. strategies right and so and so some of that falls upon you to understand when we talk about the the superficial compressive strategies that we would use those are to hold our position in space. So we're using those um, to, to manage our, our position against gravity, right? And so if I have somebody that is working that hard to hold themselves upright, that it pulls their arm downward, right? It does not allow them to reach, reach up overhead. It's also pointing you in a direction as to, hey, we might need to reorient you to allow you to capture a certain position in space. So now again, it just points me in the, in the right direction for my exercise selection. So maybe you're not upright and reaching up overhead, but maybe I can start to evolve this in some other position. So maybe I can put you in supine and we can perform some form of pullover activity, which would be right, some kind of reaching and pulling kind of an activity. And I start to evolve their ability to expand the, the, the axial skeleton the way it needs to, to achieve these positions, right? So it's, again, it comes, comes back to your understanding of like, okay, you can only reach that far before I see you start to turn or you're compensating or, on, you know, um, or, or feeling pain, which is what I don't want <clears throat> under any circumstance, right? And right. so, so again, that just falls to you and you say, okay, I understand where you're restricted. So we're going to stay in this sweet spot where you are comfortable, right? Does it mean that I don't want you to be able to reach overhead? No, that, that, but we have to respect the fact that, that, and again, depending on who we're working with, what, what is their potential for, for that type of a return? Um, and then just respecting where they're capable, right? Right. Like the, the, the concept that, the Everybody needs to push the same, pull the same, lift the same, twist the same, all that kind of stuff. It just, in reality, it just, just doesn't jibe, right? We right. don't have to fulfill all those needs. Some people are better designed, you know, when they say, oh, you should be able to hinge, you should be able to squat, and, you know, you know that, that discussion. It's like, no, 
sorry. The people at the extremes don't, don't do one or the other very well at all. Okay. So let's not force them into these situations um, right. where, they, where they're incapable because now, once again, we're taking someone towards a constraint and then we're back to your discussion. It's like, okay, what, what does potentiate these, these things that might result in an injury? Right. And so often in the fitness industry now, there are these, these hard rules that are set, just like you need to squat deep and you need yeah. to include yeah. X exercise. And it's, I mean, it's irresponsible. I mean, in my eyes, at least, it's irresponsible to say it when, you know, you may end up injuring somebody and they think, well, I followed the rule and I didn't get there. And so that's, you know, that's part of my struggle or challenge or whatever you call it to is to figure out, well, what is actually a useful rule of thumb and how do I responsibly project this information either to my clients, right. to my family or to the world at large? So, so, so here's, here's one of the limitations. Uh, and this is an industry situation is we have a very low barrier to entry into the fitness industry, right? I mean, in all reality, in all reality, if you look at it in a tank top and you look at it on social media, people think you know what you're talking about or you know what you're doing. Right. And that's just not, that's, that's just not the reality. And I'm not taking away from anybody that, that, that does that. That doesn't mean they don't know what they're talking about. It just means that, that that's literally a representation. It's like you don't, there is no credential that is required for you to establish, to establish yourself in, in, in a coaching or, or teaching situation in the fitness industry. It is not required. Right. right. So, so, so the fact that the, the standard is low, what happens is we have people that come in with very low levels of experience, very poor understanding and limited critical thinking skills. However, if you're a very nice person, if you're personable, you can carry on a conversation, you're likable. Um, and if you respect safety, you can do really, really well. You know, but that, but that, but that is a, a, a bit of the problem, but, but they are also, they don't have, because they don't have critical thinking skills or they've never been exposed to things through experience. They have a limited um, understanding of what needs are. And so when people throw out these rules, so to speak, and it, and it, and it propagates because nobody's critically thinking and going, Oh, I don't think this person should squat. And then and the other guy goes, no, everybody should squat and everybody should deadlift and everybody should like, and, and so those rules get perpetuated and they get ingrained in the, in the, the uh, industry itself. And then everybody says, well, I do this and, and, and I do this because so-and-so said so. That's a default to authority, which is what we want to avoid. When we, when we start doing that, that's indication that people aren't thinking critically. Right. So I encourage you, I encourage you to stay on the path that you're on because you're already starting to, to, to demonstrate this by the questions that you're asking. It's like, hey, you know, this rule doesn't seem to be, you know, effective across the board. It's like, that's why we're looking for principle-based approaches. That's why we're looking for critical thinking under these circumstances. So, so I applaud you for, for where you are right now. And I know, I know you're going to get better, obviously, um, like I said, just because of the questions that you're asking. So this has been pretty cool. I do need to run to the next question. So I appreciate you very much. Um, I'll see you on iFastU and the uh, coffee call. Okay. Absolutely. All right, brother. I'll be there. Take care. A deadlift would be very, very useful.
or jumping activities would be very, very useful with a symmetrical stance because this is where I need the highest force production. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have no coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Well, it is Wednesday and that means that tomorrow morning is the coffee and coaches conference call thursday 6 a.m please join us these calls have been great we're getting a bunch of regulars showing up so the questions are getting deeper and deeper and deeper more situational as to how we're applying the model so these have been really really good so please join us for that um i've asked you folks we got the split squat practical up um, last night so uh, please check that out i am digging through the applications for the intensive 12 Definitely not my favorite thing to do. I want everybody to be able to come, um, but unfortunately, um, we got to keep it small. Otherwise, it would be the intensive, right? So, um, hang in there. I already got a couple of people already pulled out that, that I'm going to be inviting. So, um, be on the lookout for that. I'm hoping to get that done this week. All right, today's Q&A is with Nick. Nick is a cricket bowler, so we're breaking down throwing mechanics. <clears throat> so, even if you don't play cricket, um, you're going to see a lot of things that are, that are very similar to most of the other throwing sports where we're breaking down phases of propulsion. We're actually looking at a couple of things that may affect your velocity in regards to throwing. So if you work with throwers on any level, whether you're a sport coach or whether you're on the strength and conditioning side, I think you'll find this interesting. So um, enjoy that. Make sure you go to the YouTube channel and subscribe so you can get all of the videos. Um, and it's searchable, obviously, so you can look for things very specifically. Um, have a great Wednesday. I will see you all tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. on the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Have a great day. We are recording and the timer has started. What is your question, Nick? Yeah, so my question is, uh, could you please explain the mechanics of the foot and the hip from the penultimate stride into the final step during cricket bowling? Okay, so, so you're talking about, so are you right-handed? Yeah. Okay, so you're talking about your left foot? Yeah. Okay. All right. from, from my right foot onto my left foot. Correct. we take that turn. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you take your, I don't, I don't know what you call it in, in cricket. We call it crow hop in baseball. You take your, your right foot, your last right foot step, and then you lead yeah. into the left foot. Okay. So as your, as your right foot lands and it's turned outward. Okay. Yeah. So you're going to create, you're going to move through propulsion on that right side. Okay, it's just going to look a little bit a little bit different. So you're going to get that the the um, the inside edge of the right foot is going to make contact with the ground, but your but the inside edge of your right heel is not going to be very heavy. So you're going to be almost like a max propulsion on the right foot as you're stepping into the left side. Okay, so. Um, because I, I live in the United States, we talk about baseball a lot more so than, yeah. than cricket. But they're very similar in, in a lot of the, the elements because we have to have these, these, these positions of propulsion to allow us to put the force into the, into the ball. So when you land on your right foot, your heel contact is going to be, be either non-existent or very, very light. Very much like a sprinter lands on the ground when they're at top speed. Okay. Um, so you're going to push off of that right foot into the lead foot. Now the lead foot is going to land in an early propulsive position. Um, so let me get my, let me get my foot here, boss. Yeah, yeah, sure. All right. So this is a, this is a right foot, but we're going to say it's your left foot. Okay. Yeah. All right. 
So as you come down and you're going to hit that, that heel rocker position, you're going to land in, in that early propulsive position. So, so your tibia is going to be an extra rotation and that's your first metatarsal head. So when that sucker hits the ground, that's where you're gonna to start to superimpose internal rotation on top of the external rotation position, because that's what this is. This early propulsive position is external rotation and you land here, okay? And then as your tibia starts to translate over, this is where you're gonna to start to really superimpose a lot of internal rotation. So this is your high force into the ground as you move over that foot. Here's the really cool thing, and you can see this on, on really slow motion. Um, yeah, can't think of his name. There's a, there's a, uh, oh shoot, I wish I could remember his name. I would sound so intelligent right now. Berkeley? Maybe. Is he blonde? Yeah, yeah, he is. Okay, okay. Yeah. So if you watch him in slow motion, he's got this beautiful, beautiful representation of this um, as, as, he's, as he's throwing. You can see, and it, there's, a, there's a video of him coming from the front that I would suggest you look at. And what you're gonna see is you're gonna see this foot kind of land on the outside edge, and then he's gonna hit this middle, this, uh, or, I'm sorry, the uh, metatarsal uh, rather aggressively, and then you'll see the tibia translate over. But the cool thing about this is, is you're gonna see this huge wave go up through his body. So, and, and literally, it, it looks like a wave Right, that you'll see go up from his foot, through his leg, through his torso, and, and, and through his rib cage into the arm. And this is the wave that comes up from the ground. So this is actually the force coming up from the ground that goes through your body in, in a split second. Um, and then he translates that, that into the ball. And so, so what you're seeing is this, this um, maximum propulsion wave that comes up from the ground. So as soon as I apply that, that first pressure, first metatarsal, the wave starts. And then as you translate over it, it gets magnified and it's huge. It's this big, huge wave. And you'll see the, the, um, uh, the curve through the spine and it'll translate up into the shoulder, into the arm, and then into the, into the ball. But what you've got to do, you've got to make sure that you capture that. That's true. So, so that's the big toe side of your foot. That's the first metatarsal yeah. into the ground. Um, there's also going to be, so one of the differences between um, cr cricket and baseball, you'll see some baseball pitchers that will bend their, their, lead, their lead knee. Cricket bowlers tend to keep their lead knee straight, much like a javelin thrower. Right, okay. yeah. And, and so that also creates a downward force into the ground through the knee. And so, so again, this is what magnifies that, that um, internal rotation into the ground. So I have to have a, a tremendous amount of downforce to create this wave of internal rotation that goes up into the extremity. Yeah. Right? Now, we... We are always superimposing this internal rotation on top of this external rotation position. So as this wave of internal rotation goes up through the body, what you'll also see right behind it is an expansion that follows. So, so when you're landing in this early propulsive position, what we've done is we've created a delay strategy on the lead foot to allow the 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 throwing side, so your, so your throwing arm, to translate ahead of that lead foot. And so that's what that ER wave is, is, is the delay that comes right behind the high force. So what you're gonna see 
um, if you're looking at yourself, you're a right-handed thrower. If you look at yourself from the right side um, as you throw, what you should see is you should see the right hip starts to translate ahead of the left. And you'll see the sort of like, I would say your left back pocket is how I describe it to most people. Your left back pocket stays back and your right back pocket goes forward. And then you'll see it go up into the to lower back, so to the lumbar spine. You'll see that delay strategy on that side as well as the right side is translating forward, okay? Uh, okay. If you don't see that, okay, if you don't see the delay strategy, then you have two sides that are trying to go together, and there's no differential. And if there's no differential between the two sides, you have a reduction in throwing velocity. Because what happens is instead you, you have a longer distance to travel. If I take both sides of the pelvis and I try to turn the whole pelvis as a unit, I have to go around the left lower extremity instead of straight through the left lower extremity. So I want a straight, a straight align towards the direction that I'm throwing under all circumstances to maximize velocity. So what it's going to look like in the pelvis, when I plant my left foot and I capture that that early propulsive strategy, the sacrum is going to be moving backwards. Okay. It's going to be moving backwards yeah. on the ilium. That's what creates this expansion on this left side. The right side is going through that. Okay. Yeah. That's where my, that's where my velocity is going to be. I have to slow this side down to let this side go forward. If both sides are trying to go forward at the same time, that's no longer a straight line. Big yeah. long curve, right? Yeah, yeah. What I want is plant here and then straight through. Yeah. You yeah. see the difference? Yeah. Right. So the the lead ilium, right? Do you want that to land in late propulsion? It no. Uh, so so it's coming forward. So so for it to translate forward, I have to create the delay here. So so this is my my right foot landing. I'm going to be here as I step forward. But my foot's not my foot's not on the ground yet. When my foot hits the ground, I have to have a quick turn. The sacrum has to turn towards the lead leg, so I have to turn this way, right, to create the delay on this side. So if this side's getting ahead, so as I'm stepping forward with my left foot, and yeah, yeah. so the ball is behind you, the ball is behind you, and I'm stepping yeah. forward with the left foot. So as I as I lead forward with my left arm to throw, okay. My yeah. hip is doing the exact same thing. So I'm reaching forward, hip goes forward. As I land and I pull this arm back, the sacrum's turning towards that side. So they're both doing the same thing at the same time. So, so my, my upper rib cage and my pelvis are both facing the same direction at the same time as I turn. Then as I, as I pull the ball through, that side's gonna go forward. And if you look at, if you look at this like shoulder blades, it's the throw. Yeah. They're doing the same thing. They're doing the exact same thing. Okay? Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. I have a small question there. So in the land, when uh, when the front foot is still in the air, we get that late propulsion, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes. So, yeah. So just a moment before the front foot hits, we pull that ilium back. And then it lands. You can't, so, so you can't pull it back until you have ground contact. You have to have something, you have to have something to help create the delay. If the foot has yeah. nothing to push on, it's very difficult to create a delay. So it's usually at ground contact where you're going to start to see that, that change take place. 
Yeah. So, so what happens at the back ilium at that point of time? Like generally, most people say that we get that internal rotation of the back hip, right? But generally, we want that early propulsion strategy at the at the back hip while the hip is turning, right? So, how does that relate to like what we are doing? Like at the back side, when that back side is turning, right? We get that internal rotation of the whole like the femur and the foot and everything is going on. What do you want the ilium to be like at that point okay. of time. Are you talking about with, with your right foot contact as you're going to yes. Okay. So when you're yeah. airborne, okay, so, so right before your right foot hits the ground, both feet are off the ground, correct? Yeah, right. Right. Because you, you, you took a big hop right before the throat. Yeah. You, got, you, right. got, you got, how many steps do you take on your run up? Somewhere around 12 to 13. It depends on the, yeah, depends I mean, so on the person. You got, a, you got a really long run up and you're airborne for a long time. Then you come down to the ground and you're going to make, you're going to make a heel contact. You're going to roll through middle propulsion, just like you do on any other stride. Okay. So as I do that, so as the right foot's coming towards the ground, the ilium is going to look like that as the heel hits. And as I make the turn, I'm going to make that turn towards the ilium. Right, because uh, okay. I got to get yeah. this foot ahead. Yeah, because I got to get my left foot out there. So the only way that I can get my left foot ahead is to create the delay strategy on the right side. So the same yeah. thing, the same thing that we talked about with the lead foot is happening on the right right side as you're going to be stepping forward. So I have to create the delay on the right. So as I land and I start to move through the middle propulsive strategy, I'm going to superimpose internal rotation on top of that externally rotated position that it landed with. This side is going to go forward. This is going to be, so this becomes late on this side to push it this way. Sacrum's turning towards the right. And you can see this, you can see this on video. You can see the turns, right? Yeah. And as my left arm leads forward, my right arm stays back. So there's my position. Yeah. This yeah. foot lands, and then I push through like so. Yeah, yeah. So I was I was confused at that middle stage. Like you said, right? We get that on the, on our right side when the ilium goes into like early propulsion. This goes forward. So uh, the turn takes place. Right? The whole orientation. Yeah. So let me show you where max where a max is. Okay. Yeah. So as you step forward with the left side, so you're still forward. on the back side now. So yes, yes. So so this foot is just about to hit the ground. So your left foot is just about to strike oh. the ground. Okay. So I'm stepping yeah. forward. So my sacrum is facing the right. I I am yeah. uh, I'm creating the delay on the right side so this leg can get out. As soon as this foot starts to hit the ground, I have to start to make the turn. But here's when we talked about the intro rotation wave that goes up your body rather violently. Okay. I'm going to be in this position. So this is a uh, mutated okay. position. So this is yeah. this is where you see this this violent jolt. If again, if you watch if you watch the throwing in slow motion, you can yeah. see the jolt of the body, right? And so they're hitting this point. So this is where the sacrum has to stop moving. The only way that I can do that is to create a mutated position with internal rotation. So for a split second, so think about this. As I so I, I'm about ready to land on my left foot. Sacrum's facing the right. As I hit max propulsion in the direction that I'm going to be throwing, boom, it locks it in. It locks it into this internally rotated position. This is internal rotation. This yeah. is forced downward. This is a nutated sacrum. No movement occurring at all. Because if I'm, if I'm moving, I dampen, and then no, no force goes into the ball, or a limited force goes into the ball, and I don't throw as hard. 
Okay? Yeah. So I go from right facing, dead center, intro rotation, and then it follows through. You see it? Yeah. So you yeah. have to be, so so for you to be an effective bowler, you're gonna have to be able to hit all three positions. This is how you figure out what to do from an exercise standpoint, because if you break your throw down, you can see where where your limitation is. So if my limitation, if my limitation is at max propulsion, so if I'm if I'm soft or I dampen through through that middle phase. I know I need to do exercises that hold me in this position, high force production, very symmetrical in regards to, to the exercises. So this would be a situation where a deadlift would be very, very useful or jumping activities would be very, very useful with a symmetrical stance because this is where I need the highest force production. Okay. If I need to create the delay to allow the, to allow the throwing arm to come through, then I just got to select activities that are turning the sacrum to the left in this early propulsive strategy. So now I'm using a split stance with my, with my front foot on a ramp to create this delay representation on the left side. So, so again, what you have to understand though is you have to understand what your throwing mechanics represent, where the limitation may be, and then you select your exercises appropriately. Does that help you? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, it does. So one more question right there. In between, okay. so you, I gotta go to another call. You, yeah, yeah, you shouldn't lose that inside heel contact while that sacrum goes into early propulsion, right? You should not. You can't. If you lose, if you lose the medial heel contact on, in that circumstance, you're gonna roll to the external rotation, and, and and the pelvis is is not going to be able to create the 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 intro rotation, so the pelvis won't be able to come back around towards that lead leg. Okay, it's going to roll this way, and then you're going to have to create a compensatory strategy. So you're going to go up, okay, and it's going to roll to the outside. So again, now you're talking about taking a long way around. You won't be able to go through because you won't right, have right, you won't be able to superimpose internal rotation on top of the external rotation. You're using a compensatory strategy to create an orientation of a turn, not a turn. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 So one more last question before you, be quick, before you be go quick. on. Yeah, very quick. So during that during that phase, right when the back foot is right on, like like yes. when it's here, when the back, it's in yeah, like when the back, when the back. No, no, just before that, when it's an early propulsion, like okay. just before the front foot hits down. Understood. You, okay, you, I know where. Yeah, right. you you want that front foot to supinate again, like it becomes like this, right? Do you want the front foot to supinate again, or so? So you're go? you're talking you're talking about that that position of 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 max propulsion on that side. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Where right. the forefoot looks like it's pronated, but the heels off the ground. So that right, is the yeah. force production on the right side. So yes, you are correct that that is the appropriate position because again, it's like, it, again, I compare it to the way the sprinter hits the ground when they're at top speed because their heel really doesn't touch the ground, but the foot has to make contact into the ground in internal rotation, has to as a rep representation. Max propulsion is when the forefoot is on the ground in its pronated position, but the heel is breaking from the ground. So there's a twist through the foot. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. So again, you have to have that representation. I yeah. hate to do it, but I really need to go to the next call. Okay. If you have any questions, just let me know. Yeah, yeah, sure. We can still move our center of mass in a, in a very compressed state, but understand that you're going to do it with a lot less relative motion. Good morning. Happy 
Thursday, I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. So I have a client that has a little bit of anterior ankle pain and he's a wide ISA and totally compressed. He does a toe touch and there's almost no posterior, um, any like any lift with the, with the rip, right? And yeah. and so he's like pretty pushed forward. He's almost in that toe off position all day. His feet are ER'd, his femurs are ER'd and everything. Yep. So I've, we, we've been using cable chops, lateral lunges onto a ramp and things like that to try to get a yielding strategy more on the right side because that's where the pain is. Gotcha. And, um, and, and I've noticed more ankle pain out of him as we increase sprint volume and intensity. Sprint volume? Is that what you said? Yeah. So we, we kind of sprint on a treadmill. He likes it. So, so we do it. It's that type of a thing. Okay. And, and so I layer in the cable chops and the lateral lunges and, and all of our planks are now offset trying to increase the turn into the right side. Yeah. And I was just wondering if I'm on the right thought process and like the way I test retest things is with like a shoulder wall flexion test. And I've seen like marginal improvements, but I feel like the sprinting is interfering with the um, recapturing of range. Uh, entirely possible um, because of, of where he's going to be landing. So he, so when you sprint, you land at max P, right? Like it's right, right before max P, but we might as well just call it max P. So, so your the heel is essentially off the ground. Sorry, <clears throat> the heel is essentially off the ground. The forefoot is going to be uh, with uh, first and fifth metatarsal contact, right? So, so it's tw the foot's still twisted, but you're at the stiffest connective tissue position, right? Right, and so that makes it very, very difficult to to move because the again you're in, you're you're creating the the overcoming action within the, the tissue. So that's the release of energy. So the tissues are stiffer. Um, if you, if you, um, if he is in a late propulsive representation, which is what it sounds like you're describing, right? It's like, like so his toes, his toes do the, th the, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. So, so where you, where you gotta, you gotta move them all the way back. You gotta move them back to early first. Okay. So you get the yielding action back in the connective tissues themselves. Otherwise you're just going to be battling stiffness. Gotcha. Okay. Then what you do is you move him forward through the propulsive cycle from early to middle in a, in a reduced load manner. Right. So this would be a front foot elevated, right? So I want to tip him back to unweight the, the, the lead extremity and then teach him to translate the tibia over the foot. And that's what's going to get your, that's where you're going to get the dorsiflexion back, right? Because that's probably yeah. what he's missing is, is he can't dorsiflex because it hurts in the front of his ankle, right? Right, right. Yeah, so you got to, you, you, you have a late propulsive representation, which is an ER. You don't have an IR through the, through the, the foot, right? Right. And then he's gonna, he's probably also gonna have this, this, a similar representation on up, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so you're gonna take him through the, 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 the whole thing. What you're also gonna have to do most likely though, is you're gonna have to drive um, a, a, the delay strategy in the upper thorax as well. Okay. Okay, um, because chances are, you're gonna have to get ankle, pelvis, thorax at least, at least, okay? Because if he's still driving himself forward um, in the thorax, 
you get too much weight bearing too quickly through the foot. Okay. Okay. So you, so you basically you just need to create the delay all the way up. Okay. A yielding strategy first and then, and then, like I said, moving through in a, in a less weighted representation. Um, all right. So in terms of like biasing a certain movement towards a particular phase of gait with like whatever you're trying to recapture. Um, so I guess like for the sake of this question saying like going after early propulsion, um, and like using like a heels elevated or like a full foot heels elevated goblet squat. Uh -huh. Um, I can see how the representation at like the tibia in terms of like how it's interacting with the foot resembles yeah. that early propulsion phase of gait. Yeah. Yes. Like my question is how exactly does all of that like work its way up the chain in terms of getting those early propulsive mechanics at the pelvis and like the pelvic diaphragm to like get that, those expansive qualities. How, how does it work? Okay. So, so it, now we're talking about like the strength of a stimulus, right? So how much heel elevation do you need to create the response farther up the, the, the system? Is there another way that you can, that you can promote um, a position like farther up in the thorax? Cause you're right. Like it may not be enough to just place the foot on the, on the inclined platform to get the thorax to move backwards. Right. Because we're talking about, um, and again, the way that we see this stuff is you, you look at this initial representation with ground contact. So you're right. It's like, it's really easy to see tibia relative to the foot, but what about the sacrum? What about, what about moving that thorax back? So what is the representation that, that you're, that you have in, in mind when you look at, when you're looking at the, at the upper thorax and you don't have to describe it. I'm just throwing it out there. It's like, how, how could you capture that? Like, where do I need to put, where do I need to put the extremity to allow the, the yielding action to take place in the upper thorax? Sometimes you put people on the incline board there and they do it automatically. And sometimes they don't. Right. So, so some of this is going to be your coach's eye as a representation of, of what you want to see. So typically you want to see that, and we can just generally say, I want to see that expansion in the dorsal rostral, right? I want to make sure that the scaps are not elevating as they move through the, the whatever activity that you're doing on the incline board. Okay. So how can you assure that you get the, the, the thorax position? You have, to, you have to say, okay, where am I going to put these upper extremities? You, and you were using a, like a goblet? Yeah, I, I, I you use any number of things, but I guess for this conversation, yeah. Okay. So if I hold a weight right here in this goblet position, mm -hmm. okay, is, is, the, is the load over my center of gravity or in front of my center of gravity? It's the load over in front of. Awesome. What would be my natural reaction if there's a load in front of me that's pulling me down? Move backwards. I'm going to move backwards, right? So right away, I put the goblet here. So this is why we use heels elevated goblet squat because it's anterior to my center of gravity, which means that I'm going to move away from that weight to maintain my center of gravity, right? So right away, I'm, I'm starting to create that, that yielding action, right? It's an early propulsive representation. Look where my arm is relative to, to my body as well. Right. This is why, like we, we talk about rack carries bias in you towards an, an ER, 
an ER strategy, right? So you're, you're creating that here as well. So, so at its core is like biasing a different phase of gait, just about like manipulating the center of mass relative to the extreme positions. Okay. So can I at, answer your question with a question? I figured you would. <laughs> <laughs> so if I'm in an early propulsive representation, am I behind, am I, is my center of mass behind the foot? Yes. If I'm in middle propulsive, is my center of mass over the foot? Yes. If I'm in late propulsion, is my center of mass in front of my foot? Yes. So what's the answer to your question? Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's all it is. But, but, but to do this, to do this, to create this manipulation of your center of mass, I need this relative motion available to, to do it comfortably and easily. We can still move our center of mass in a, in a very compressed state, but understand that you're going to do it with a lot less relative motion. And that's important because higher force productions demand that we do that. So now you have to, you, you make the decision. It's like, where, what am I trying to chase? Am I trying to chase my relative motions? Okay, then I have to manipulate the center of mass in, su in a, such a way that I don't give up the relative motion in the process. If I'm trying to improve somebody's force production, I have to, I have to teach them how to move their center of mass with less relative motion with the higher force output. Gotcha. So, so someone, someone who's really compress and you're trying to give, give them like bring them back to early propulsion doing that heels elevated just makes it easier for them to get their center of mass behind which is why they might be able to descend more easily and there you go and so as I move this forward, more and more of that gluteus medius changes its orientation. More and more of piriformis changes its orientation. More and more of glute max changes its orientation. Good morning, happy Friday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, man, busy, busy Friday. Facebook groups have been killing. Um, I was just on the uh, IFASU Facebook group. Great questions coming in from, from everybody that's involved there. Um, so if you're not part of IFASU, you probably want to get on there and start digging in with, with those fine folks. Um, the intensive, we got a big call this weekend with the, the all the attendees of intensives one through uh, 11 that are still doing great work. So excited about that. Um, Q&A's have been going really, really well, which reminds me I have one spot available for a Q&A on this Saturday morning, Eastern Standard Time. So if you would like that spot, please contact me through askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Today's Q&A, is with Luigi and Luigi had questions about about split squatting so we've talked about offset loads as far as emphasizing internal external rotation elements of, of the split squat now we're going to do it with with band tension so so this is a really good discussion for for you folks that would would want to use this take technique and as to why you may want to choose to use it um, we also covered some early and late propulsive representations in the foot so if you still have have questions about that this will be a great call um, for you guys so I hope everybody has a terrific Friday, a fabulous weekend. Uh, podcast will be up on Sunday. And so I will see you guys next week. We are recording and the timer has started. Luigi, what's your question? So I would just, uh, I was just wondering if you could uh, explain to me the difference between a uh, band pulling the knee from the outside versus the inside in a split squat. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
So um, essentially what, what you're doing is, is you're, you're creating an early, or I'm sorry, a late propulsive representation in the lead leg when you're pulling with the band inward on the knee. So what happens is, um, is that you're creating a concentric orientation of the musculature below the level of the trochanter as you descend um, in, into, into the split squat. Um, so there's a misrepresentation of this. So people say, oh, you're pulling on the, you, you, in fact, I think you asked me about this, is, is that you say, is it the gluteus medius that is holding that position? So as you descend into the split squat, the gluteus medius actually changes its direction of pull from external mm. rotation to internal rotation. Okay, and the reason it does that is that it's helping to secure the, the femur in the acetabulum. So its direction of pull pulls the femur straight into that hip socket, okay? The musculature below that is maintaining its orientation into external rotation. So what this becomes then is a, is a, a late propulsive representation. Let me, grab, let me grab my pelvis for a second. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what we're talking about then is we're talking about, we're talking about musculature in this general vicinity that is maintaining its, its external rotation position. So, so as I push out into the, so if this is the lead leg on the split squat, if I push out into the band, this musculature right here is going to maintain external rotation. So you're actually reducing your ability to capture the internal rotation position in the bottom of the split squat under those circumstances. Because if this musculature is maintained in concentric orientation, I don't get my normal nutation of the sacrum. Mm, okay. okay. So, so and, and there's reasons to do this and there's reasons not to do this. You just have to decide what your intention is. So again, if, if I'm trying to maintain some measure of, of external rotation orientation of this musculature throughout, then of course you want to, you want to have the band that's, that's pulling inward under those circumstances, but it's not, it's not glute med that's doing it in this position. Like I said, glute medius, it would be the same thing as, as orienting the pelvis forward as if I bent the, the hip this way, the gluteus medius changes its direction of pull. So when, when you're standing like this, it's an external rotator on this, this back half. As I go this way, it becomes an internal rotator. Okay. Oh, just to dissect on that some more, um, is it like, what degree? Just to, I just kind of want to know because you guys always talk what about degree of what? Um, hip flexion when it turns into that internal rotator, the glute medius and... What, what are the, the muscles? Is it the muscles below the lesser trochanter? Is that what you're talking, referring to? It's like below here. It's below here. It's right here. This is kind of like, it, it, it's not an absolute. It's, it's, it's a, if you look at the notch, it's going to be the stuff that if I could grab that, if I grab the ischium kind of like a pistol, if I grab the ischium like that, it's going to be that musculature there that maintains its orientation into external rotation. Okay. Is that, um, just to go on the dead guy anatomy, is that like pretty much the piriformis and everything no, else below? No, Piriformis is above that. So the piriformis actually changes its direction of pull as well. So okay. the piriformis becomes an internal rotator. So we're talking about the Gemelli brothers and the, the external portion of obturator uh, internus. Okay, I just wanted to really get into the nitty gritty because I, I just wanted to make sure I've been looking at like textbooks and just wanted to clarify. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't mean it's not useful. You just gotta, you just have to have an understanding is like when, when they're teaching you in dead guy anatomy position, they're not mm -hmm. talking about the change of the orientation. So uh, yeah. they'll, call, they'll call glute max. Oh, it's an external rotator. Uh, yeah. Not all the time. They'll say glute uh -huh. media is an external rotator. Not all the time. 
Mm-hmm. And they would say anterior is internal, and then the the the, the posterior aspect of, yeah. of is, is the external. Well, in in dead guy position, yes, but as soon as I do that, no longer. And so the the, the thing that that I don't want you to get caught up in is like there's not an exact measurement of this. So mm-hmm. so think about how many fibers you have that just slowly change their angle of orientation. And so as I move this forward, more and more of that gluteus medius changes its orientation. More and more of piriformis changes its orientation. More and more of glute max changes its orientation. It's a gradient. So if I go really slowly, you see it? It's like, it's like, it goes, right? And then it changes. Yeah. So don't get caught up. recruiting more. Yeah. Like I'm going to give you a number for, for, for a frame of reference. Okay. 60 degrees, 60 degrees of hip flexion has, has been one of these numbers that they'll throw out because they're talking about where performance starts to change its direction of pull m- more often than not. Um, they'll say it's about 60 degrees, which happens to coincide very similarly to where the internal rotation moment at that hip starts to increase rather dramatically. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So does that help? Does that help? Yeah, absolutely. It's just for me, I just like to have that reference. Just kind of, sure. uh, it's, like, I, it's like, it's like, like, I'm okay with that. But what I, what I don't want you to do is get caught up in the number because it depends. It depends mm-hmm. on the circumstance. It depends on the orientation of the pelvis. It's not an absolute. It's just a, it's, it's, it's a frame of reference for comparison purposes. Right? Yes. Yes. Exactly. To look at that stuff. Like, don't, 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 like if you got to bet a thousand dollars on whether it's 60 degrees or 59 and a half or, or 42 or whatever it is, don't do that. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'll save that money. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you were talking about pulling on the, on the inside, correct? Oh, you, you want to change the direction of the pull? Yeah. What about, can we talk about the outside? I was, uh, I was Actually, watching. So, okay. So you're talking about a band that's trying to pull the knee outward that you're, you're trying to resist. Yeah, so you're you're pretty much um, medial, you know, um, foot heavy because you don't want to crawl out. Okay. So so let me ask you a question. All right. Okay. So if the, if the band, if if me pulling against the band inward with with the, so the band's at the knee, we're in a split squat orientation. Let's say that's left foot leading. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just so we have a frame of reference. So so if if I have to push the the medial aspect of my foot harder into the ground under those circumstances, am I increasing um, the, my, my internal rotation effort or external rotation effort? Internal rotation effort. Absolutely. So it's that simple, right? So, so if, I, if I have a band that's trying to pull my knee out and I'm slowly descending into my split squat, I'm actually enhancing my efforts to capture more internal rotation in the bottom of that split squat because that's where it's going to show up the most anyway. So if I'm at the top of a split squat and I'm in this ER representation with the sacrum facing away from me, as I descend into the split squat, what I should see at the bottom is a representation of internal rotation in the pelvis, right? Cool. Now, so you notice that my pelvis is facing the right as I'm leading into this split squat, right? So as I descend, the pelvis is going to face the front and I'm going to capture this internal rotation position. So the musculature that, that is pulling against the band is the musculature that turns my pelvis towards the lead foot. So I'm actually enhancing my ability to capture internal rotation if I use a band in that way. Let me make a comparison for you that, mm-hmm. that I've talked about in the past that will also provide you sort of like a light bulb moment. One second. <clears throat> I'm talking a lot this morning. Okay. <laughs> 
if you if you have an offset load like a like a one you have a, like like let's just say you have one kettlebell and you're doing split squats uh -huh. the band pulling the knee inward that we talked about first is like putting the weight on the same side as the lead foot so we would call that an ipsilateral load right that's going to emphasize the external rotation element coming up out of the split squat so it makes it easier for me to come up out of the split squat harder to capture the internal rotation down if i use a contralateral load so i put the kettlebell in my right hand with a left foot lead in a split squat i now made it easier for me to capture the internal rotation moment at the bottom of the split squat so i can use an asymmetrical load i can use a band as you described and i'm and i'm capturing the same elements um, of position what um at the beginning or at the end of the split squat does that make sense yeah i definitely um i was confused about that too um the the loading of like uh, of a split squat and that makes it's now that you, you mentioned that you made that comparison that makes it's just exactly yeah. pretty much the same but, so, so here's here's where the money is um regardless of whether you're using the asymmetrical load or the band under these circumstances what you're going to want to make sure that that you're coaching or feeling yourself if this is for yourself it doesn't matter um you're going to want to make sure that you capture the foot position okay because the, if you don't capture the foot position it doesn't matter how you load this sucker right because the foot position is your first contact with the ground on that lead foot and so for me to get internal rotation under any circumstance, that medial aspect of the foot has to be on the ground, right? The kettlebell in the opposite hand helps me do that. The band making me pull in against the band helps me do that. You see it? Yeah. So would that also go for pretty much all your other exercises, like um, the, the supine cross connect and everything other like? thousand percent. Yeah, you're, okay. absolutely, right. you're absolutely right. Yep. Okay. I would definitely coach that for myself and uh, clients as well. Just always get that foot, probably take their shoes off or anything. So sometimes, so sometimes you do, especially for those clients that wear the really thick, heavy mm -hmm. shoes, you know what I mean? They're, they're kind of mushy and, and heavily padded. They can't feel the ground. And so they're kind of all over the place. And so, yeah, sometimes taking them out of their shoes is, is a necessity. So at least they can gain the understanding. Once they do that, then you typically don't have too much trouble. Yes. Yeah, so they just get... Uh, like get better or understand that feeling. Okay. How much time do you have left? Four minutes? We have four minutes and nine seconds. Mm. Go, 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 go. Uh, I want to ask about myself. So I've had a left um, ACL injury like years ago, five, five plus years ago. You say injury. What was it a sprain or, or did you have a, a surgery? Oh, I've had surgery. Uh, had a cadaver in it, and um, uh, it's been pretty good. But I've always noticed that this left side is always lacking um, internal rotation, uh, and I always find it like I f lately I've been finding it hard to when I plantar flex my my foot, and then I try to e um, pronate or evert. It's it's just I feel restricted. Like there's like a I'm just hitting a wall and then my where do you feel, where do you feel the restriction um probably like the uh the the talus bone around there okay. and and my um the lateral muscles like the peroneus muscles just feel really tight and just um on, on my left side that same acl injured is leg there, is there any is there any position where you can capture that medial foot position 
with 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 the the heel moving towards eversion. Uh, what are you, are you talking about? Like like this like is there any position? I, like I, like all I'm saying, all I'm asking is, can is there anywhere it, it how you position your foot or your your leg to capture that that medial aspect of the foot? Mm, maybe when I'm in like a mid stance, like one okay. leg. So if you can do that, if you can do that, all right, then then you know you can you can capture the position of the foot that you need. What you what you might need to understand is is what position are you landing in in regards to the the left foot. So if if you've got a left side that is landing um, and and moving very quickly through middle propulsion towards late, then you have connective tissues that are behaving very very stiff. So they're stiffer. Okay. So what you might need to do, and again, not having examined or, or, or seen you move yeah. around, but what you might need to do is teach yourself how to, how to recapture this early propulsive representation. And so now we're talking about um, not just heels elevated activities, but, but your whole foot elevated on a, on a ramp kind of a thing. All right. So if we were talking about your split squat, okay, that we, that we started with, what you're going to want to do is you go left foot lead split squat foot on a ramp. So the whole foot is even on the ramp. Okay. And then you're going to want to start to superimpose some internal rotation on top of that. So we're talking about the contralateral oh, load yeah. or yeah, see, you're already reading my mind or you're <laughs> talking about, or you're talking about a band that's pulling your knee outward to hang on to the internal rotation because what's probably happening is that you're landing in an ER representation, you're landing in a late propulsive strategy, and you're not capturing the, the delay moment, the early propulsive representation on that left side, because that's where you superimpose the internal rotation, okay? If you can't capture internal rotation, that's step one, because th remember, the late propulsive strategy is an external rotation representation, but it's pushing that side forward. It's turning your sacrum away from that direction, right? Because it's trying to keep that left hip forward, not wanting it to come backwards. So under most circumstances, you're going to have to capture that early uh, representation. Okay? Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Um, pretty, yeah, it makes sense as far as like where we, um, what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, just uh, why the whole foot versus just the heel? Just to because Okay, so so the, there's a, there's a difference between I'm going to show you with the foot. Okay, so one sec, hang on. I got to turn this silly thing off. There we go. So when when the metatarsal's down, the and the heel is down, and the tibia is behind the ankle and externally rotated, that is an early representation. The late representation is heel elevated with toe extended. So, so that would be a dorsiflexed big toe. So these are not the same positions. This is a position where the connective tissues are in a yielding action. This is in a position where the connective tissues are in the overcoming, which means that they're stiffer here and then they can yield and absorb energy here. You need to find this position, not this one, because chances are you're already using this one. Mm -hmm. This is why you're having trouble 
This is why you're having trouble capturing the internal rotation is because the connective tissues are trying to push you ahead. They're releasing energy and pushing you forward. You need to create the delay where everything can expand in external rotation and you create the, the yielding action in the connective tissues to absorb the energy first. Now you can land, you can start to superimpose your internal rotation. And once you capture your internal rotation, I imagine you're just going to be fine because now you're going to move through that, that uh, propulsive phase um, with good control versus trying to accelerate through it and trying to get to late as quickly as possible. Okay. So, so strategy wise, the band pulling your knee out, right? So you can pull the knee in, keep it in line with the hip. That's going to get you this interrotation. It's going to get you in th that medial yeah, contact with the ground, offset load, contralateral side in your split squats. Okay. Does that help you? Yes, sir. Thank you. So great to talk to you. Um, Say hi to all my friends in Vancouver, because I got people out there, you know. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah you friends all over the place. You're yeah, like, dude, awesome. I, You're really it's, like... It's a, it's a byproduct of being just really old. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You have a great day, young man. I'll see you. Thank you.